0: These things? A Couple hours. I try to, um, it doesn't bother me because it's like, I, it's not like, in the, I'm not like pulling up research articles, I'm just looking at review books, so it's not like cutting edge stuff, you know. What's that? Yeah, I mean, I have some stuff. We had, like, the residents used to pass around, like, these humongous digital files of practice questions. The problem is they're, like, they get out of date. Yeah, so it's got its good things and its bad things. Um, Dr. Dash is talking after me, so I just want to get started so I can make sure I get through and I don't run over. Um, And so I'm just, people can trickle in. Um, but we'll just go ahead and get started. I wanted to take a couple minutes at the end, maybe I'll do it now while people are trickling in. If you guys don't mind, I would love to get your input on something that I'm working on for hospital administration. They've asked me to try to look at the code blue situation and see if we can improve code blues. Obviously we don't have code blues in the emergency department because you're all wonderful and we are all there to get the the process, the resuscitation started. but on the floors. I have never been to a code blue. Can, can someone tell me what is the experience? There's
1: like, there's I heard like there's like
0: 1,000 f- like people. 50 yeah.
2: to 60 people. OK, so who's oh, in charge? Whoever <laughs> stands up and <laughs> says, I am code yeah, leader. Whenever does that <laughs> happen? <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Someone says, I'm a code leader. Yeah,
2: it's like, I'm Are I'm they the first leader. one like, there? No. no. no, no. How long does it take like, to get there? Depends on where the code is and where code leader was when the code blue is called. Uh,
0: does the code leader put in the airway? No, no, anesthesia gets no. paged no. also. Anesthesia gets paged. Okay. Does anesthesia beat the code leader there usually? Sometimes, not, not always. Not usually. So the patient's just being bagged until yeah. anesthesia or, gets there. Or not at all. Mm-hmm. Or, not yet. or we're just watching them turn blue. we're below.
2: just
3: doing chest compressions
0: sometimes. Without worrying about the oxygenation portion right, of the yeah. circulation. It
2: okay. depends on where they are. If they're in the ICU, they tend to be able to...
0: Don't play worry, play. ICU, they've got all the resources there. I would rather know more about what happens when it's On the floor. On the go in sometimes and they're just, they're doing chest yeah. compressions. You they have
2: a pulse. They don't know. Is there a respiratory therapist there? No. they get, how long get, get
0: there. there. Right. The, I know they get paged, yeah. but they're, it's not really, I mean, because yeah. a nurse can bag. You the don't actually need to be a respiratory therapist. The problem
2: isn't in the new hospitals, when they're in the tower, and it takes uh-huh. forever to get to the tower, so it's kind of a free-for-all for who gets there first. Okay. And because it's on the floor, the nurses there don't exactly know what to do, and they're kind of running around with their Is back.
0: there a nurse who's like, I'm the, I'm the code nurse leader?
2: Yeah. No.
0: Okay. And who are the other 50 people? So <laughs>
2: like and like, and why are they there? There's like two RTs, and there's like a whole ICU team, which is like the fellows, the senior residents, the interns. Well, why aren't they
0: doing something? It, like they the can all... is isn't
2: something to do. <laughs> well, I mean
0: like bag the patient, do something. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> oh, no a and
0: what happens when it's in the ICU? Tell me about that.
2: That's usually it's a lot better, easier. Yeah.
1: It's better? Well, it's weird because like, if, if someone codes in the SICU, mm-hmm. the MICU team will go there. But, if that, but And that's only useful if the SICU team is like down in a trial or doing something else. Mm-hmm. If the SICU team is there, it's kind of like, OK. But the only, the really useful thing is when the pharmacist shows up. I feel like, that's good. When that guy shows up and he's got all the meds. Because, like, you ask a nurse for whatever med and they can't yeah. figure it out. But the pharmacist is like, oh, here's your next epi. Oh, you need to mag? Here you go. Okay.
2: Yes, you know. So yes, you know. pharmacy is know. a plus. I like pharmacy. I don't know exactly. that okay. okay. You met lawn? lawn? You guys know lawn? You guys met lawn? Because the nurses, know, they're oh, used like to it. And they know what they oh, sure. should be it's doing. It's yeah. kind of like a
3: special. But the four nurses... <laughs> Okay.
2: Yeah, I had a lady going into anaphylaxis on the floor, and I, and I was like, I knew exactly what to get, because McCoy had that, and I was like, I need this, and they were like, I don't know where to find that, I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, we need this epi, so they hand me epi, but it's cardiac epi, I'm like, I need the other concentration, they're like, we don't have that here, okay. and, it just didn't, and it just didn't happen. And they just kept are the codes
0: on the floor, are they relatively, like,
1: like yeah. never actually no, I, so. I, mean, I mean, like, is it, yeah, is it like somebody who's like like, 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 nine out of ten of them? Or is like, that person just there. stopped talking? And then you're like, dude, they're fine. And there's okay. like a hundred people in there. Right? All so right.
2: So and, so so <laughs> and a lot of times they're already suspended. It's just like they lost <laughs> their voice. <pulse laughs> okay.
0: All right. Thank you for it's that, that information. It, to say at least, yeah. I appreciate your input. All right. Moving on to questions now that we've dissected Code Blues at our institution. Um, <laughs> Alright, Dr. <laughs> Weber, we'll get it, the pain and torture done early for you, you. since you've been Imperial
1: female history of end stage adrenal disease on peritoneal dialysis presents with abdominal pain. Do you suspect peritonitis is a cause of her pain, which falling most likely in logic agents? Hmm. I feel like there's this is either gonna know it or not. But I'm gonna go with um, uh, let's see, she's got a tube in, she's managing it herself. It like, uh, staph
0: day. Good. It is staff. All right, yeah, so I just threw this in there. I realize it's urology month and peritoneal dialysis. are probably thinking more along the lines of, you know, them going to hemodialysis, but you are going to see a significant number of patients with peritoneal dia- dialysis catheters in their belly. And they're in there all the time, and so they're going to get infected, and they're going to present, like people with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So they have abdominal pain, they have, fle- they have fevers, and sometimes they'll even bring in their dialysis fluid and they're like, look, see, it's cloudy. That should tip you off that they probably have an infection. The numbers are normally um, 100 or more WBCs and greater than 50% have to be neutrophils. So that's, it's a little different from your other fluid analysis, just look it up. It's not something you really have to remember. I didn't see any questions testing you on the actual number. Um, the antibiotic should be given through the catheter. It's better to give it through the catheter than it is to even give it IV. So, um, and at our institution, I know the nephrology folks, they get really persnickety about their little peritoneal dialysis catheters, and they don't want us to touch them because we work in the ER and we're dirty. Sure. Um, and so they want you to call a peritoneal dialysis nurse to collect your fluid sample. So. Keep that in mind. Don't start mucking with the catheter yourself because you will anger someone. Um, So you should give them vancomycin and you should give them gram-negative coverage and those are some of your options. They say treat, uh, Scott I'll get to you in just a second. They say treat for seven days after the culture and I'm going to say plus or minus three days for the culture so normally they're being treated for about ten days. You don't have to change the catheter after one episode of an infection. It's after recurrent infections. Um, so they don't always need the catheter changed if they get an infection. Scott, did you have something?
4: Just, it's okay for the patient with no medical <laughs> skills to muck with their catheter, do their... <laughs> like, hey, we're, changing, but we're not good. <laughs> yes, but not
0: us. We are <laughs> dirty birdies. What? A
1: do you I think it's the up? same, um, but I don't know. Yes, I don't know. Really?
0: I don't know, yeah. I would have to look it up. Sorry. Um, okay, Max, you want to take this one?
2: <clears throat> uh, a 34-year-old man presents with a acute onset of penile pain and swelling, which occurred during sexual intercourse are shown the next slide, which them as appropriate
0: management. Hang on one second, I'll give you your picture and then switch back.
2: Oh, <laughs> okay. so it's a fractured penis. OK. So I think it's a fractured penis. OK.
0: So this is a good example of a question that makes you go one step further, right? So you just made the diagnosis, and you're like, yay, I know what it is. Yeah, that's not one of the options, right? So now you've got to take what you think it is, and you've got to pick from these.
2: I don't think it's you know, <laughs> <laughs> don't They think used want, to use it pretty frequently. I don't think you want to it. Crush your dress and That seems kind of weird. I'm not so sure. So if you observe, I don't I would C.
0: Yes, okay. C. For some reason, boys don't want their penises to be misshapen and broken, and they want them to be surgically repaired right away. So call a urologist immediately. Charisse, was this our patient that we saw on trauma B who had like nothing on physical exam, right? Just a great story. Just a great story. Yes, and she got him to the operating room in like 20 minutes, it was unbelievable. I've never seen anything happen faster. Is it a surgical emergency? It is a surgical emergency. You can, it is, in your mind you should always be talking to the specialist and it's a surgical emergency until they tell you otherwise. There are some cases that they try to treat with penile splinting. But that's not something you should decide as an emergency physician. You should call a specialist. Because more often than not, they're going to the operating room. All
3: right? I'm picturing,
0: like, Popsicle sticks. Like, right? Popsicle sticks and tape. Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know. Okay, all right. Sorry for the image there. Okay, so just a little bit more about penile fractures. This, the part that actually breaks is the tunica albuginea. Um, It's this part that goes around the corpus cavernosum, corpus spongiosum is around the urethra. That's not the part that's broken. It's this part, the outline of the uh, corpus cavernosum. Um, It's normally a popping sound, swelling or pain. If you have a good story, I swear to God, there was not even a bruise on Charisse's patient. It was just a very good story and urology took him straight to the OR. So, if you're really suspicious, don't let your physical (laughs) exam Deter you from talking to the specialist if you're really, really concerned about it. Okay? Um, if there's uh, gross blood at the meatus, it could indicate that the urethra was somehow damaged or the spongiosum around it was damaged, and they would need a retrograde urethrogram to rule out a urethral injury, but that's relatively uncommon. That it doesn't happen often. So not all patients need a retrograde urethrogram. Okay. Question three. Juan, you're up. All right, so if you're all
2: female do you want to thirty five weeks of station?
1: With abdominal pain, vaginal discharge, low grade of low-grade fever. She states that she was uh, well until two days ago and after coughing she experienced a small amount, a small stream of fluid running down her leg, which she thought was urine. Her temp is 102 and her pulse is 108. Her, her examination reveals a yellowish discharge in the vaginal vault with a tender uterus. The most likely cause of her symptoms is, let's see, sensual eruption. <laughs> All right. So yellow, yellow. I'm gonna have to say that uh, because she has a fever, she's at 35 weeks, close to uh, delivering here. I'm probably gonna have to go with uh, chorioamnionitis.
0: That's the right answer. Good. This is another two-step question. So what they're giving you is that two days ago she had premature rupture of membranes, and because she's 35 weeks, it's pre-preterm premature rupture of membranes. So. PPROM, prom okay? And so when you have that, when the membranes rupture early, um, it predisposes you to infection, and especially with prom you can get chorioamnionitis. You're at increased risk for chorioamnionitis. <clears throat> so just a little bit about premature rupture of membranes. Uh, so it's rupture of the membranes before the actual onset of labor. Reasons for this is if there's lots of babies, if there's an infection, if they have trauma, fetal anomalies, Placental abruption, placenta previa; these can be all reasons for uh, premature rupture of membranes. With pre prom like I said, it's it's preterm premature rupture of membranes. So earlier or before 36 weeks, um, significant fetal morbidity and mortality. So you should get on the gas and talk to someone right away. Okay. Um, to test for it, I have never done either of these two things. But for some reason, the questions want you to know that amniotic fluid has a more neutral pH. The, the normal vaginal fluid is acidic. So if you test it and it's 7, 7.2, it's amniotic fluid because it would be abnormal for vaginal fluid to be that high. And we have those like, the, what is the strip of paper that we use to test the eye stuff? Can you use that?
4: I mean, we got that on purpose so we could go both sides of the spectrum. We used to have the only nitrosine in the old days. Okay, we could only go the basic side, but the stuff we have now can be used for eyes because we can go the acid side too. Yeah, it would work the same. The same okay, way. so
0: a nitrosine test—that's basically what you're doing—is it's like a dipstick to test the pH. So similar to what we would do when you have an eye injury exposed to some sort of acidic or basic eye fluid. Um, and there's ferning, which basically just means you take a glass slide, you take a, your little Q-tip of the fluid, you swab it on the slide, and you see if it makes a little ferning mm-hmm. pattern, like a like a herpetic dendrite, if you will, um, because <laughs> amniotic fluid crystallizes as it dries. Okay, so those are the two things you can do if you're uncertain. So in our ear, where is the- it's an excellent question, and it changes every time I ask for it. So I would ask a tech because they have a much better idea of where it would be than I do. The official answer is
4: supposed to come from the lab. we got a gentleman to come up from the lab to quietly keep it. It's supposed to be kept above the sink and that little pull-out is there. Okay. So it's supposed to be.
0: Um, so if you think you're seeing a patient uh, in your emergency department that has premature rupture of membranes, you should be talking to an OB. You should be giving them steroids for fetal lung maturity, not so much for mom, if, they're, if the fetus is under 36 weeks, and if it's PROM, then you can be using tocolytics. Those would be decisions that Guyne would make, though. Um, I know we don't see a lot of this, because everyone who's over 20 weeks goes upstairs to the OB clinic, but that's not gonna happen if you're out in community hospital, um, so you need to know what to do with this stuff. So chorioamnionitis, it's an infection that ascends you know, from the vagina up into the amniotic fluid. Um, we t- kind of talked about risk factors. The only one that I want to point out for us is multiple vaginal exams increases the risk of chorioamnionitis. So if they're over 20 weeks, you should not be doing, you should be doing sterile pelvic exams, first of all, and you should be limiting the number of ex- exams to only those patients where your exam is going to definitively change management, okay? All right.
5: So, in this case, definitely a pelvic exams warranted.
0: Which case? The one that, the question case, yeah. where the lady had the premature rupture of membranes? Mm-hmm. Or would you wait until OB come down and do it again? With this history, I would not do a vaginal exam because I'm already thinking that she coughed and she had fluid running down her leg and now she's got a fever and a tender uterus. I'm already thinking she's got some sort of vaginal infection, right? And she's 35 weeks, so I'm just getting an OB involved. I'm not necessarily sure I would that my exam would do a whole lot, because I think you can probably do like an external vaginal exam without actually having to do a sterile, um, like digital vaginal exam. I think you can probably take a look, see what's going on. If you see discharge, I wouldn't, I wouldn't continue with the vaginal exam. All right.
4: So they're starting to drying culture and starting antibiotics now because for the kid to come out, you want to get some get some juice in, in,
0: in sure. that kid. Sure, yeah. Um, if you suspect that the, she's got an infection, um, amp and gent, and if they're going to do a C-section, then you want to cover for flagellar clindamycin. And they can get this in the postpartum period as well. So if they had a C-section, you want to broaden your coverage as well. Yeah
3: cases I've had with this, Mm -hmm. both times O.B. is asking not to do a pelvic exam. Okay, Um, good. So don't do one. It's a clinical diagnosis and you can call them based on your suspicion.
0: Perfect. Thank you for, um, good to know what our docs are saying as well. Um, Okay, question four. Who's next? Do you want to go?
5: Yes. Four three-year-old male with a history of kidney stone present with progressively worsening left flank pain for several days, dysuria, vomiting fever to 101. UA shows 50 white count. Positive lucifer esterase. Positive bacteria. CT having published shows seven millimeter stone. Left UPJ junction, uh, which is following uh, its appropriate management. So seven millimeter. Um, question of whether it's going to come up or not. Um, Uh, I can't quite remember the cutoff of the size, but uh, you want to use like ketorolac to dilate uh, uterus, um, but which is not in there. And he has infection, so there's tylo, Um <laughs> so this, this is complicated. This, uh, I don't think pyelo pi, uh, is gonna be resolved with antibiotics, given there's a stone in there, probably infected. So I would I would call our fellow urology consult instead of sending the patient home.
0: Good. It's an emergent urology consult for a couple of reasons. Number one is he does have an infection so he has an infected stone. And the treatment is antibiotics, but probably not going home with antibiotics when you have a seven millimeter stone. All the textbooks, all the questions use five. Five millimeters is the cutoff. If it's over five or if it's an infected stone, you should be talking to urology. Ultimately, the patient might still be going home, but you need to talk to your specialist, okay?
2: So even if there's like a less than one millimeter stone that's infected, that's urology,
0: correct? A less than one millimeter infected... A yeah. Ditzel?
2: <laughs> That's,
0: I'm going to let you use your clinical judgment on that one. I'm going to say, you, right, you don't necessarily need to talk to a urologist there. Oh, okay. With close follow-up, you can probably manage that one. Total Just with strict- is still
4: infected I, stone equals cum, cum. A Ditzel? Yeah. yeah. Infected stone,
3: technically, you're supposed to talk to them. Yeah.
0: that though? Hmm. <laughs> That's test <laughs> questions? No,
2: a one-millimeter <laughs> stone? No, 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 no.
4: The textbook answers are going to
0: tell you. If there is an infected stone, it's a urology okay. consult. I have never seen a one-millimeter stone in a question, if that helps. The smallest I've seen is three. Yeah. Yes. Okay, uh, question five. Shahina, do you want to do it? I'll get to the other side of the room after I finish this one.
2: A 50-year-old male develops a onset of severe right flank. patient has never had a kidney stone before. He asks
0: you what his risk of getting another stone is. You tell him that the lifetime risk of recurrence is approximately D. It is D. That's good. Well done. I didn't know this. I'm going to be totally honest. I was like, what a stupid question, but I just... I put this in there just because patients ask you all the time, right? How did I get this? I don't know how you got it. You just got it. Am I going to get it again? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but, so here, you can quote them 50%, at least according to this textbook. Yeah. yeah. I don't make any of these up on my own. I'm not smart enough.
2: <clears throat> all right.
0: Okay. Karen, you're up. Okay. 12 year old boy who has to progressive testings that are swelling. To show the next slide. Which of the following is most complication of this condition. Okay, hang on. Here's your picture. I'm before I show this picture, I'm so ready to switch topics cuz I'm tired of looking up penis pictures online. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
3: So, bring up a wild. bag of worms. And brings a bag of worms to work. It's not
0: going to deter me from eating gummy worms. It's not going to deter me. All
3: right from a varicoseal. I'm gonna guess
0: A. Nope, anybody else have another guess? C. 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 It's infertility, so um, good guess though, Karen. It is, it was correctly identified as a varicocele, so the bag of worms is how they describe it. Um, it's basically dilation of the pepiniform plexus and the um, testicular vein. Um, large ones can increase the risk of infertility due to blood flow problems and temperature problems. So, um, But this is just, it's another example. This is how the questions are gonna be laid out. They're going to make you take two steps, right? So you're, you're in residency now, so now the questions, they're gonna expect you to up your game a little bit. So you're gonna have to know what is the condition? Oh, that's not gonna be one of the answer choices, but it's how do I treat this condition? So you have to know two things, kind of. And that's a, some of these questions are good examples of the sort of the, the, the thinking that you're going to have to do to get through these questions. Okay, oh goodness, let's move on. All right, um, okay, so varicoceles are the bag of worms, the dilation of the veins. It's more common on the left, just anatomically, the um, spermatic vein goes into the renal vein on the left, and on the right-hand side, it drains into the inferior vena cava. So because of the difference anatomically, left is more common. If you see a varicocele on the right side, you should really be looking for some sort of intra-abdominal or intrapelvic pathology that's causing it. Uh, it may cause testicular atrophy, and it really only requires surgery if it's very large, if it's painful, or if they're bilateral. So if a patient just has a varicocele, it, you do not need to call your urologist from the emergency department. It's perfectly fine to send them out with adequate follow-up, okay? Um, hydroceles, um this is, uh, it's a fluid-filled remnant of the processus vaginalis that surrounds the testes. Um, If these, a lot of times, little kids will have them, and they'll go away by the time they're a couple years old. Um, If it doesn't, though, it may need surgical repair. Uh, So, just the differences between the two. Okay. Question seven, Pam. Do you want to take question seven? Which
3: of the following findings? Twenty phen over one normal UA. Uh, C you're in Ozlem under three hundred and fifty. Moderate malaria. Present casts. D you're awesome, over five hundred. Present casts. Now I have to actually read it to myself silently so I can. <laughs> <laughs> Take
0: your time. <laughs> that's that's not helpful. <laughs> Have,
1: um, <laughs> I may
0: have dissuaded you uh, from the right choice by a untimely typo.
3: <laughs>
0: huh? Okay, let's talk about the answer. Since Pam cannot possibly get this question right, since the answer is written wrong, it's B. F E N A is supposed to be less than one right here. All right, it's B. All right, I'm so sorry about that. Um, okay. You could give a whole lecture on acute renal failure and I'm gonna try to hit some highlights for you guys. Um, I'm so sorry about that, Pam. So, prerenal, intrinsic, and post-renal. They're gonna break it down into three possible categories. Prerenal is under perfusion for some reason or another. Either there's not enough fluid because they're hypovolemic or they're bleeding to death, or the arteries are really restricted and so less blood flow can actually get to the kidney, like in renal artery stenosis or something like that, okay? Intrinsic is where the kidney itself is actually damaged, so it's just not working the right way. You're going to get, that's where you're going to get like all sorts of casts in the urine, and you're going to get, you know, uh, protein is going to be spilling out because the kidney itself is damaged. In post-renal, I think that's pretty obvious, is where there's an obstruction to flow somewhere distal to the kidney. Uh, For one reason or another, either, Obstruction to the renal collecting system itself or like compression from an intra-abdominal mass that's pressing on a ureter and causing an obstruction. So for pre-renal, it's under perfusion. The BUN to creatinine is greater than 20 usually. You can see hyaline casts. The urine osmols are elevated, greater than 500. Fe, The fractional excretion of sodium is less than 1%, sorry Pam, and these are some of the causes. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, hemorrhagic shock, Things like, uh, that cause low cardiac output, like MIs, uh, tamponade, um, beta blockers, um, renal artery stenosis, sickle cell disease, malignant hypertension, or like NSAIDs can cause arterial uh, constriction as well and reduce renal blood flow. So there's prerenal. Intrinsic is where you get proteinuria. You can get red blood cell casts. You can get white blood cell casts from infection. Urine osmols are usually less than 350. The fractional excretion of sodium is greater than one. And some examples are you know, acute tubular necrosis can be either ischemic or hypovolemic. Lithium can do it, rhabdomyolysis can do it. Um, intrinsic causes can be infection, penicillin, um, proton pump inhibitors, things like lupus, acute interstitial nephritis. Um, and then glomerular causes can be like post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, um, HSP, some of the vasculitises. I have asterisk next to glomerulonephritis up here because um, even though the urine osmos are usually less than 350 and the fractional excretion of sodium is usually greater than one, for glomerulonephritis those can actually be opposite. Um, So it kind of has its own category within the intrinsic causes. Post renal is the obstruction of the urine flow. You can get crystals here. You can get red blood cells. You can get white blood cells. Urine osmoles are usually less than 350. Fractional excretion of sodium is usually greater than one. And this is stuff like neurogenic bladder from diabetes, spinal cord injury, anticholinergic drugs, multiple sclerosis, any type of a mass, either you know prostate cancer or a mass somewhere else in the abdomen that's causing compression, BPH, uh, reflux, like um, little girls who get urinary reflux, that can be a cause for postrenal obstruction. Uh, any type of stones, a big gravid abdomen can cause compression, um, or any type of like urethral strictures. And there's a lot of overlap. Like the vasculitises can be both cause prerenal and intrinsic um, acute renal failure. So. There's a lot of questions up here. A lot of it involves the fractional excretion of sodium, so that is something I would try to remember. The BUN being greater than 20 is something I like to hit upon. And then what causes casts? Um, so there's a lot of overlap. In the ER, I don't think this is as Im- we don't tend to focus on the causes. We just try to treat the conditions. But for the question, I would say this is probably most commonly asked, this one, and then which ones have casts, okay? Uh, Just kind of a little tidbit, there's, I'm sure you guys have heard of post-obstructive diuresis. Who knows about this? Everybody know about post-obstructive diuresis? So you put a a catheter in um, and you get out like 1,500 cc's of urine. The concern is that some patients have an exaggerated response to a decompression of um, Once their obstruction is decompressed, they have an exaggerated diuresis, and it can actually be life-threatening. They can lose so much fluid, and their electrolytes can become so deranged that they can actually uh, die from it. Um, I know we've talked sometimes, people have said like, oh, you just intermittently clamp off the Foley catheter, and that will prevent the hypotension. Um, There's really no studies that prove this does anything to prevent hypotension or hematuria. The hematuria is thought to be because the bladder wall is so distended that you've actually started to damage the bladder wall, and then you shrink it down right away, and you're gonna have a little bit of bleeding. Um, And that's okay, it's not, doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. If there's a lot of blood, then (laughs) that might be something else, but some hematuria should be expected. But if patients continue to diurese greater than 200 to 250 mLs per hour for more than two hours, they should be admitted, because they're gonna need really intensive um, IV therapy to replace 80% of what's coming out. Okay? So just a phenomenon that you should know exists. Okay. Question 8. Sharice, would you like to do question
3: 8? Which of the following is non-appropriate treatment for pre Uh A is terbutaline, sub-Q to the deltoid. B is sedation. C is neosinephrine installation in the corpora cavernosa. D is exchange transfusion. So, um, and first-line treatment usually is terbutaline. But uh, from what i read, it's up, it's into the actual corpora. Um, neosinephrine is a third-line treatment. Exchange transfusion could be used if it's a sickler that's getting pre-epism. Um And I suppose sedation is always a possibility if they go to the OR. If it's all refractory. I think it would be A because it's not supposed to go into the deltoid.
0: Does so anybody else want to take another stat up? Now, exchange transfusion, just like she said, it can be used with sicklers. Sedation. sedation. Seda- oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, sedation. Say why the patient something. What's that? I'm sorry. You
3: didn't say why the patient. If it's nope. Because of a neurological injury, then you did not
0: want to sedate it. True. They don't give you anything about the cause, so they just are asking you what are the accepted options for treatment. And uh, exchange transfusion is an option. Neosinephrine installation is an option. Turbutylene is actually given subcutaneously. We We're going to talk about that.
2: Yeah.
4: Lastly, any muscle should be able work, but the DELT is always its own test.
0: Two things have fallen out of favor. Sedation, it does not help make it go away by just making them sleepy. Doesn't work. And ice enemas, doesn't work. So don't try those. Ice
1: enemas? Yes.
4: Ice
0: enemas? <laughs> hey, I don't make this stuff up. OK. All right. So. So, priapism, there's actually two classes. I don't know of anyone who's ever seen high flow. Scott, you can tell me if you have, Uh, know anyone who's seen this one. Um, Low flow, these are the ones we're going to see. It's the sicklers, it's the erectile dysfunction medications. Malignancy can cause it, spinal cord injury can cause it. High flow is where they have a rupture of the cavernous artery, so they actually get like an AV fistula phenomenon. So they have lots of arterial flow that's keeping the penis erect, but the venous flow out is not actually blocked. So they do not get, the risk of priapism, obviously, is that you get um, ischemia. And in high flow, you don't get ischemia. So it's actually not an emergency. I would not take the chance of treating (laughs) one as the other. Um, I think for our purposes, we can focus on low flow. But I do have a little chart on... Um, if you aspirate blood from the corpus cavernosa, y- there's actually some um, ways to tell if you're dealing with a high flow or a low flow. Um, and I'll show you that chart in just a minute. So, treatment options. Terbutylene, uh, 0.25 subcutaneously or 0.5 IM are acceptable. Uh, or you can give it orally. Most of the ones that I've heard is 0 point, like you said, 0.25 actually into the deltoid. I suppose you can go up, I mean, deltoid is a muscle, so... I don't know why they have two of them, but um, I don't think you would see a question that's going to give you a difference between these two. Uh, phenylephrine, 100 to 500 mics intracavernosal injection. Methylene blue, haven't, didn't know about that one either. I know, yeah. And um, corporeal aspiration, 30 to 60 mLs of blood from the 2 and 11 o'clock positions. Um, And an exchange-change fusion is also an option. So low flow and high flow. If you stick a needle into the penis and aspirate blood um, and you send it down for analysis, if it has low oxygen, high CO2, that's low flow. And I think that tends to make sense. If it's high flow, it's going to be, you're going to have more of an arterial component to it. So you're going to have increased oxygen and less CO2. So I think that sort of makes sense. Okay. Question nine. Austin, do you want to do question nine?
4: Uh, a 65 year old male needs an emergency CT scan with um, ID oh. contrast, which is the following risk factor for development of contrast induced acute uh, tubular necrosis. Um I don't know, probably diabetes, I guess.
0: It is, it is diabetes. What are some other risk factors for contrast-induced nephropathy? History of contrast Okay, yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: Fair enough, that's adequate. Uh, we talked about diabetes, the answer to this question? Dehydration, Dehydration. hypovolemia. Uh-huh. Anything else? Metformin. metformin. what's special about metformin? Right, so if you get, if you're on metformin and you give the contrast and they start to develop renal insufficiency from the contrast, they can get very dangerous, lactic acidosis from metformin. So what, if your patient's on metformin and you're planning a CT scan of the chest with IV contrast, what do you have to tell them? What are your discharge instructions? Have to include. Do not, do not, do not take,
1: it it. take it for... for how long? 72
0: hours. 48 hours, good. And it goes as far to say that they should be checked for, their creatinine should be checked before they restart it. Um, I technically tell people usually to hold it for 48 hours but if they have a primary care doc, you should refer them to their primary care to get it rechecked.
4: For the test, keep this in mind, but the current scientists is starting to think that that's all bunk.
0: It's still really heavy in the literature, yeah. though. That's what I'm saying yeah. is
4: test-wise burns in your brain. But in real world, we realize it's starting to shift. But the tests really take five to ten years to catch up.
0: Yeah, they do. Yeah. They're about that far behind. So uh, when books talk about acute renal failure, they talk about um, community acquired, sort of like pneumonia, community um, acquired renal failure, and then hospital acquired renal failure. And this, uh, we do a really good job of beating up people's kidneys inpatient. Um, So basically, the creatinine tends to increase over three to five days, and then uh, it usually resolves. The risk factors are if you already have underlying renal insufficiency. If you have diabetes, especially, I don't know why, insulin-dependent diabetics are more at risk. If you're old, if you're greater than 70, you're more at risk. Hypovolemia, so always make sure you hydrate your old peoples before you send them over to CT. Even if they have CHF, give them a little bit of fluid, Um, unless they're in congestive heart failure. Don't do that then. Hypoalbuminemia makes it worse, Uh, myeloma. um, High blood pressure is a risk factor, not as bad as diabetes, but still, if they have uncontrolled high blood pressure and the use of diuretics. Some of the things that you can do to try to prevent it is number one, hydrate them. It's the easiest thing, it's the safest thing, just hydrate them. If their creatinine is like 1.5 and you need to get a contrast-induced study to save their life, hydrate them. Um, Bicarb, a lot of institutions have protocols. I could not find one at our institution for a protocol. We used to use bicarb drips all the time in Chicago. It's 3 amps of sodium bicarb, which is 50 mLs per amp, in 850 cc's of D5W prior to the IV contrast. If you get even half of the uh, liter bag in before they go, it's supposed to protect, help protect the kidneys because it alkalinizes everything, and it makes the kidneys less affected by the IV contrast. It makes it less toxic. There's also people used to use um, N-acetylcysteine, but... From recent literature that I found, it seems like that's tending to fall out of favor. It's expensive and it takes a long time and you're supposed to start it like way before it would be useful for us. And so I you know, I really I would not spend my time on this one. I would do bicarb or hydration or nothing. We talked about metformin already.
1: What about in state renal dialysis?
0: It has to be dialyzed out, but it does not have to be dialyzed out emergently. So, I've heard the argument, and I have no literature just to, to back this up. I haven't done the lit search on it, but I've heard the argument that if they're still making urine, you shouldn't do it because something is still happening in their kidneys. There's still some sort of functional component. But if they are straight-up dialysis and they're not squeezing out a drop anymore, then you just give it and they have, it has to be dialyzed out, not emergently. But if their kidneys are doing something and they produce some amount of urine despite their dialysis, you shouldn't give it. And that's anecdotal. Scott. Thing. Anecdotal. I was, okay.
4: I was I was I was, uh, I was I was about to ask, saying, what do you do if the kidneys still work sound and, and creatinine, unless the beans are dead, <laughs> they're not making urine at, at all. Creatinine, I, honestly wouldn't go near. As far as the bicarbonate
2: goes, is there data to support all that, or is that just kind of? I just does made it, make it up. sense. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it is sort of one of those things that like it seems to make sense, and um, that's why we do it. Or is There, there are. There's a lot of studies
0: out there. Um, It's still being used more than the NAC is, Um, but as with everything, there's always a lot of support for, and then there's always studies that say it doesn't really work, but I have seen favorable studies with bicarb. So why don't we have a protocol? I don't know.
4: It's because fluids definitely work, bicarb may or may not work, NAC is out of favor, Nothing. Uh,
0: yeah. okay. I think radiologists, their big push is just hydrate the patient and okay. that should be protective of the kidneys. Okay. Okay. I have done bicarb drips some folks before, but I can't say that I followed them up to see what their creatinins are. I have seen contrast induced nephropathy here in our emergency department. Patient came in three days after her ED visit, she came in, she was weak and feeling crappy and her creatinine was 4.5. Three days ago, she got a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast. Had completely normal urine function then. 4.5 when I saw her. So it happens here. Okay. All right. Um, Wes, I think you're you're up. Can you see it? Oh uh,
1: yeah. Which okay. of the uh, following lab abnormalities may be seen in patients with hyperemesis uh, gravidarum? Um.
0: B. It is B, I didn't, I didn't know this one either, I had to look it up. Alright, it is B, they can get elevated liver function tests just to make your life more interesting with like HELP syndrome and everything else, right? Um, so yeah, they can get, they basically get, they lose weight instead of gain weight during their pregnancy because they are actually vomiting so much that they start to drop weight. And it says, I think the magic cutoff is about 5 pounds, but don't quote me on that. So they get a starvation ketoacidosis, so you're going to do their urine and they're going to have ketonuria, okay? Um, So they're dehydrated, they get hypokalemic, not hyperkalemic, as the question suggested, and they can get alkalotic from um, the vomiting and dehydration. If they have abdominal pain, look for something else. Hyperemesis, gravidarum, I mean, other than, you know, patients complain that they get, like, their stomach can hurt just from the vomiting, but if they have abdominal pain, then it's not hyperemesis, so you need to look for other things. The treatment is with IV fluids and antiemetics. Interestingly, on this... Question in the book, they listed Zofran and Regolin as class B and Fennergan is <coughs> class C. Um, and they also listed Benadryl as class B, but I thought Benadryl was class C, so I would have to look at Benadryl as an option. But Reglan and Zofran are class B, so that's what I would go with.
4: Any also IV fluids, but also carbohydrate substrate,
0: too. Oh, yeah. It, it should be, you should be replacing them, you can do your boluses initially, but then you should be having, D, it should be D5, something with a carbohydrate source. Sorry, thank you for pointing that out. Okay. Um, I think we're back to the start. Do you want to take the next one on then?
1: Yeah. So, which of the following is a risk factor for the development of kidney stones?
2: Uh, female gender, hyperparathyroidism, Crohn's disease, hyperthyroidism, and diabetes. I think the answer here is Crohn's
0: disease. It is. It's Crohn's disease. It causes hyperoxaluria because it increases calcium oxalate in the urine. It's, um, males have it more than females. It's hyperparathyroidism that increases the calcium. Uh, Crohn's disease is the correct answer. Hyperthyroidism does not, and diabetes does not increase the risk of stones. I think it's the only disease on the planet that diabetes does not increase the risk of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Weber, back to you.
1: Which so of the following findings on UAs found in pyelonephritis but not in cystitis? So, pyelonephritis but not cystitis. Uh, WBCs, WBC casts, nitrates, leukesterase, bacteria, not cystitis. Uh, I guess casts? B?
0: Correct. So, this is just another thing. If they were to have an elevated creatinine, they could have evidence of intrinsic renal failure. Uh, infection is one of the things that can cause that. You can get RBC casts. Okay. Question 13. Would you like to take to question 13?
5: Sure. Which of the following is expected laboratory a patient with H-Cup syndrome, sleep paralysis, liver function, or platelet? Uh, so, weight decreasing the movement. So, yes, I would pro. in time, decrease fibrinogen, uh, which is process of analysis. So, I would go with E.
0: That's what I picked the first time, too. Does anyone else want to take a stab at it? <laughs> yeah, it's only <laughs> A. Um, so decreased hemoglobin, as the name suggests, um, it's hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. That's how you get your H-E- H-E-L-L-P. Um Right, exactly. So they can get D-I-C if it's bad enough. And if they have D-I-C in addition to their HELP syndrome, then yes, all of these would be elevated, making E the right choice. But by definition, HELP syndrome does not necessarily mean they're going to be in DIC. So, um, these coagulation studies will frequently be normal. And in fact, a lot of the things that I read, and I hate to even throw this out there because it's so controversial, um, that the first sign that the patients are going to go into DIC is an <coughs> elevated D-dimer in none of these tests. It elevates before all of these. So, I'm not encouraging you to go out there and order D-dimers on a bunch of pregnant ladies. But, that is what I have read. So, HELP syndrome. Hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, H-E-L-L-P. Um, it's a clinical variant of preeclampsia. So, keep an, their blood pressure, it might not actually be elevated, but you should definitely be keeping a close eye on it, because you're going to treat it like you would treat preeclampsia. Patients will oftentimes have epigastric or right upper quadrant pain. Um, you should really consider it in any pregnant patient with abdominal pain or postpartum patient, with abdominal pain. At minimum, you should be looking at their CBC because their platelets are going to be the most telltale sign. Some studies use 100,000, other studies use 150,000. I would err on the side of caution and I would say 150,000. Also, they're gonna have elevated AST, ALT, and LDH, and they don't have to be sky high. They can be, you know, elevated but not super elevated, so the numbers don't have to be skyrocketing. Um, PTPTT is normal unless they're superimposed DIC. Um, and remember, for preeclampsia, the blood pressures, the cutoff that they use is greater than 140 over 90 for preeclamptic patients. Um, but keep in mind that it's also, they sort of use 140 over 90 as a sort of broad definition, but it can also be defined as greater than 20 millimeters of mercury above their baseline systolic are greater than 10 millimeters of mercury above their baseline diastolic. So I mean, my normal blood pressure is like, I don't know, 105 over 50. So if I was at 130, I would be hypertensive for me. So keep in mind that the definition changes a little bit and you need to have a, a high index of suspicion for this. Um, Terese. I had a patient at Long Beach a couple days ago that uh, just gave birth, so there's
3: still a possibility of pre-eclampsia with a blood pressure of one sixty over hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no other symptoms. All her blood work was normal. Mm-hmm. So including her
0: urine did not have protein in it?
3: Including her urine. Okay. So urine, C B C, LFTs, everything was good. She was asymptomatic. So I just treated it, got the blood pressure down, and got her an appointment appointment with her OB GYN. And a community setting do you think that's appropriate to do? Or was there anything else we should be worrying about in the setting of
0: Was she hypertensive heart? before her pregnancy?
3: No. Okay. was hypertensive throughout
0: her pregnancy. Did you see the blood pressure come down?
3: Yeah.
0: What was it when you discharged her? It's like
3: 120 over 80. Okay. Um, so i was stuck between if this is a, should I even admit for a postpartum pre just based on blood pressure alone, or is it okay to treat and just
0: with Did you off? talk to her OB? Yeah, I
3: did.
0: Okay, I would have let the OB decide. I would say that that patient is in a high-risk category. At 160 over 100, they would make me really nervous, even with everything being normal. Um, What did she present for? What was her presenting complaint?
3: Just her blood pressure.
0: She wasn't having headaches or dizziness or, okay.
3: She was sent from where? She actually went to her OB's office We sent her there, and then we treated the blood pressure, and I called her back and told her, look, everything else was normal, and they are like, okay, send her home, we got an appointment
0: tomorrow night. Okay, that's appropriate then, that's okay. If you can't get a hold of an OB, or if they have mild proteinuria in their urine, or you give them something and you don't see their blood pressure come back down, I think these are high enough pa- risk patients that you may end up having to admit them. Okay. But the way you did it, I think, was appropriate. You talked to all the right people and got a good follow-up plan. Did
1: you admit them to OB then?
0: Yes, they should really be admitted to OB. Mm-hmm. Unless, I mean... You know, a lot of our patients are not the healthiest population before they get pregnant with the babies, and so they have high blood pressure before the pregnancy, and it's complicated throughout their pregnancy. Um, So, you know, I guess you could make the argument that if it's, you know, the pregnancy is more of a medical issue than an OB issue, but I would always start with OB in the postpartum period. Okay? Anybody? Any more questions on HELP syndrome or preeclampsia? I think we're done, I have three study questions and they actually talk about stuff that was in the lecture, so I will let you guys just, we're answering them in your head, right, Dr. BC? Yes. We're mentally postulating about them. Okay, I <laughs> guess we're <laughs> quietly pontificating the answers. <laughs> Is everybody done with the first one? Maybe? Okay. I'm moving on. I can't wait for a new topic next month. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'd like
3: to
0: continue this topic. No, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, if you were to look at like the history on my computer, it would be, oh my God, people would be like, who is this crazy person?
3: Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's it, I just have three. <clears throat>
3: stop the recording if you guys please. want to talk about the